Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us here on Off the Couch on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Matt Mitchell, the running editor at Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Okay, today is a lot of fun. I had Olivia Amber back on the show almost a year after the first time she came on to catch me up on some of her major life changes, including joining the North Faces athlete team and deciding to step away from the corporate world for a bit to pursue training full-time. Liv and I have spent countless hours philosophizing out on the trails together, and as is typically the case, can never really seem to remember what we talked about after the fact. So I was happy to get this conversation on tape. But before we get into that chat, I do want to take a quick minute and encourage you all to check out our Blister membership and all the benefits it offers, including access to all of our flash reviews and deep dives, personalized gear recommendations to help you find the right pair of running shoes, discounts on a bunch of really sweet products we love, and a whole lot more. So check out our Blister membership via the link in the show notes. Also, if you've been enjoying the conversations I've been having on the show, please do us a favor and leave us a rating or review. Little things like that go a long way in supporting the podcast. Okay, let's get right into my chat with Olivia. Olivia, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm excited to be back. Yeah, it's been like almost exactly a year since you were first on uh, with Jonathan, not myself. But a lot has happened since then. So I kind of wanted to start the show by catching up, seeing where you're at with training, life, all that stuff. Sweet. Well, yeah, I guess a lot has changed. So <laughs> it's hard yeah, to believe it's no, only I mean, been a year with the amount that's changed. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, no, I think that like just living in the pandemic times, it's kind of distorted time in this like weird way where like everything just feels like it's, you know, it's either like happening really, really fast or super, super slow. Yeah, totally. Agreed. <laughs> All right. So catch us up. Well, Geez. So first off, I actually left my stable, well-paying job at a big tech company um, in the beginning of the summer, which was a big decision to make, but one that I feel very fortunate to have made. And you know, a lot of people thought and probably still think that I'm crazy for, for leaving this job, but we just felt that after five years of investing in our sort of financial capital. My partner, Eric, and I were ready to change things up and spend time investing in our shared passions in the outdoors together. Uh, so it also just so happens that I signed on with the North Face at the beginning of the year. And I'm really, I'm just extremely fortunate and excited to to hopefully have a long-term partnership with them. And so really for a bunch of reasons, I just felt like it was the right time to invest in this area of my life that I care so much about. But that being said, the plan is to take a year off of the corporate grind. And I'm kind of calling it our year of investing in our human capital instead. So really excited about all the big changes. Yeah, I feel like knowing you, you haven't really had a concentrated time away of like a time of exploration. Um, I mean, like ever, right? Yeah, essentially ever. <laughs> of like just been working, <laughs> working your ass off for like most of your life. Totally. So this will be, it's been not saying this will, cause it actually is my present life, but it has been just an incredible time so far. And I just, I'm really, 
really excited about it. It's definitely needed for for many reasons. So what has investing in yourself looked like? Oof. Wow. Really starting off with the big questions. Oh, okay. It's my job here. <laughs> I think oh man. It can be it's like practical. Like what how have you been spending your time? Lots of training actually. So First things first, I wanted to have some purpose for for this time off. And not to say that I needed to have a checklist of things that I wanted to accomplish is actually far from that. So that's my usual way of being is having lists and checking things off and getting things done and having all these goals and, you know, working towards them. And for this time, I just I wanted it to be a little bit more qualitative, if you will. So Basically, what that looks like for me is a chunk of time dedicated to just putting in a training block that I'm really excited about. And it's for UTCT 100K end of November. So I've been putting in a really big training block for that, which um, has been really cool and something that I've actually haven't experienced yet in my running career is having time just dedicated to to training for that. So I'm excited to see where that takes me. Um, at least it will help reduce the sort of fitness variable of I'll be definitely really ready for this race from a fitness perspective. So that's exciting. Um, so a lot of time invested in that. Uh, time invested in just friends and family and travel and spending time, quality time with my partner and the outdoors. And a lot of that this summer was spent in the Sierra, a place that I, my partner and I love. We just spend a lot of time there whenever we could outside of work. So it was great to spend an extended period there. And I feel like I learned a lot about myself and, uh, and a lot of different things just from spending time in the, in the, in the, in the mountains. So, uh, and of course also lots of, of reading and podcast listening and things that I can actually spend more time doing now that I'm not, not working as much. So has making training like a priority taken you back to some of your, your skiing days a bit? Yes, definitely. So when I was training for skiing, I was also a student. So I, you know, with that being said, had the summers off, but I usually had some sort of internship or something else that I was doing on the side while I was doing that kind of training in the summers in particular when I wasn't in school. Um, but it's definitely taking me back to those big high volume blocks in the summer that I would put together for skiing. And it's, it's really nice to feel like I have that that sort of knowledge base and training background. So I just feel like I know what I need to do and I know what it takes. I know what it takes to, to what, what it takes to put in a good training block and what that means, what kind of outcome that typically uh, presents. And so I feel, yeah, I feel like I'm in a really good place largely because I've had so much experience doing that in the past. It's just, it's been weird not having that sort of job or school to pay attention to on the side. So in some ways, a fun challenge um, for me, just I'm used to having like a totally filled schedule. So um, instead, it, I'm just really exhausted at the end of the day. And I'm like, wow, there's no way I could actually be be working on some stuff right now. My brain is just so tired from all this training. So it's kind of fun. <laughs> I was going to say, like, what is what kind of like mental endurance does putting in a huge block like this take? Because you can only train yourself like physically for X amount of hours in the day. And doing that like day after day after day, like to me would just seem like so fatiguing. 
um, and like caused me to stress so much about all of like the the minutia around training because you can always do more, right? Totally. And I think for me, I I like to take an intuitive approach to my training. While of course I have a training plan, I have an awesome coach that I trust so much, and I have a lot of sort of advisors, if you will, in my corner. Um, so I obviously take a very quantitative analytical approach to my training. On the other side, I really lean into my intuitive side of training every day. Every day I wake up and I say, okay, what's on my training schedule? Why is this here? And how am I actually feeling? Does it actually make sense to put in that kind of work, that kind of load if I'm feeling off or something else or some other stress is happening? And honestly, for this duration of time, since I started putting in this training block without work, I've actually felt like, so normally that would mean most times I wasn't actually doing the workout prescribed because I was just, I had too much other life stress. This time I actually am able to execute it to a T and feel great about it. I've felt my fitness really just increase by a lot. I'm definitely fitter than I have been before and for for this for my running career. So I'm excited to see where that takes me. I mean, you never really know. There's so many variables with ultras, but it's a really exciting place to be. And I think for me, it's just really leaning into how I'm feeling at my core. And I think from like that mental piece that also gives me a lot of it empowers me and gives me a lot of strength to like just keep pushing forward. Like, yeah, I'm really tired physically, but I know that I'm doing what's right for my body right now. And I also have a lot of trust in myself that I could pull the plug on a workout or a double or whatever it is that I'm supposed to be doing if it it feels like I'd overdo it. Um, So my biggest fear is overtraining and overdoing it. I just, I will definitely pull the plug before that happens on training. And I do have a lot of trust in myself for that. So I think yeah, I just really lean into every day. How am I feeling? And, you know, what actually makes sense today? But so far, it's looked like actually what my training plan was supposed to look like. So that's pretty cool. How do you kind of like develop that sense of like body awareness? Because I feel like a, a lot of people, I guess, maybe speaking for myself here, maybe like listen or like get a sense of where my body's at every day when I run, but don't necessarily like listen to it. Is that just through like experience? That's a really good question. I definitely don't have, I actually, I don't think there's a right or wrong answer, but I do think it's perhaps one part experience, but maybe another part practice, which I guess is also experience in a way. But I just, I feel like if I wake up every morning or I do something and every time I you know, making a decision, I'm trusting in my gut instinct and I'm in tune with that. And I'm really conscious of my subconscious in a way. (laughs) Um, It's hard for me to actually explain this. I'm pretty sort of quantitatively oriented person. So it's kind of a funny thing to be talking about this because it's such a sort of qualitative thing. But um, yeah, I think, I think it's just really practicing feeling your core self, right? Like what is your gut instinct telling you? And overriding maybe some other fears or external anxieties that could be sort of suppressing that actual sort of gut feeling that you have about making a decision about something. I definitely haven't done any specific training for this, like training my gut instinct or anything. Um, But I do think that 
the more you practice that over time, it helps become sort of your decision maker and your guide in a lot of ways. So I don't really have an answer, unfortunately. Um, but I do think, and, and maybe some people just have more of a gut instinct than others or are in tune with that. I'm not really sure, but, um, I guess that doesn't really answer your question, but no, it does. And I think it like, it leads us into uh, a bigger topic that I wanted to talk to you about, which is like ego. Cause I do think that like Mm -hmm. a lot of listening to yourself and like following your own instinct has to do with like mitigating your own ego and not like not allowing social forces and like comparing yourself to other people kind of like corrupt your training. Right. Totally. Speaking for myself, like I do dumb stuff in my running because I know that people will see it on Strava or whatever later. <laughs> um, and we've talked so much about this. Um, so for those people who are listening, uh, Matt was one of my biggest training partners for so long until he kind of overdid it a little bit on his foot, but he's coming back, which we're excited about, but we've talked so much about this idea of ego. And I think it also plays a lot into some of the things that I do in the mountains and you know, sort of choices that um, I, I I make. And I think everyone has some bit of ego. And I think it's all about sort of ego management in a way. But um, yeah, I mean, I think this is a great topic, right? Because it's really sensitive. And I think a lot of people kind of shy away from talking about it. I'd like to think I'm not an egocentric person. But I think there is totally this complex place to discuss what place egocentrism has in sport. Like, for example, if someone's doing something risky, like, you know, free soloing something or just training at a super high volume, what's the reason for them doing this? What's their true reasoning? Is it, you know, attached to their self-worth? Is it attached to some sort of external motivation like Strava? Is, is it actually just attached to their pure love of doing the thing? And, you know, there's so many different forms of ego has, and it's not necessarily always a bad thing but i think just being aware of what your ego is telling you that's i think where intuition comes into play this where humility comes into play and i think like being able to override sometimes where the ego is saying you need to do this otherwise like you're not enough or you need to do this because you need to get more kudos or you need to get that crown or whatever it is like if that's your real only <laughs> your only reason or your primary reason for doing something, then that probably means you're leading with your ego and not your intuition. And I think for me, that's something that I like to pay attention to because I think it increases my longevity in the sport. And I also think it helps me make better decisions, especially in the mountains and for my training. Uh, but what do you think? Like, do you, what is your sort of assessment of of how ego. <laughs> I Turn always the like tables your perspective. I know. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, I think it's like, I have trouble answering that because like, I recognize that like my, my ego is very much like at fault when it comes to my inability to stay healthy as a runner sometimes. Um, and it, it feels like I, I grab, oh, I go back and forth between whether or not like I want to be on like Strava or like engage socially, because I do think that like I have an inability to like not compare myself to others. And that comes out in like running too hard or like running above my means. Um, 
So yeah, I don't know. I guess I'm like a bad example because I, I very much don't have that figured out yet, you know? I don't think you're uh, a bad example at all. I think it's it's interesting because I know you so well. And so to me, if when I think of who Matt is, I'm like, he is like the least egocentric person that I know. Like there is no ego there. And so it's so interesting, I think, to hear you explain your rationale for sort of pushing yourself in sport, right? Because then maybe that is that maybe that's the only place that your ego actually is sort of coming out. And that's really interesting, right? Because I feel like you the way you lead your life in other in other ways is so not ego driven. So it's such a it's an interesting concept, but but you're so right. Like if you are pushing yourself just, you know, to get that crown or to have a specific pace shown on your on your on your Strava, then then yeah, that's probably not Right. And I like it. I see someone run like someone that I know run and post a Strava. And if it's on my rest day, I'll feel like this like compulsion to go out and run and like, you know, run a mile further, a mile faster than them. And I don't think that's like a foreign feeling to people, though. Totally. For whatever reason, because running is like it can be very compulsive. Totally. And we Um, all love it. Right. So when we see other people doing what we love and like to do, there's this pull just did that. That's cool. But we can sort of lean towards using that as a source of inspiration, right? Motivation. Right. But it's it's a hard thing to to work through, I think, over time. But I also say like I'm not competitive, but deep down I think I am. <laughs> For sure. Uh which is hard to grapple with. I think maybe if I owned it a little bit and like recognized it, yeah. it'd be uh, you know, less of a bear. Yeah. Um yeah. but <laughs> But I so going back to ego, I want to talk about some like some examples of that in the context of what you're up to this summer, Uh, because you mentioned how dangerous ego can be when you're doing something risky. And I know that uh, when you're not training for a race, your favorite thing to do in this world is go adventure in the mountains. And (laughs) having gone through a few trips with you, I know that like they can get kind of hairy sometimes, Um, at least like from my <laughs> from my standpoint you're you're much faster and and uh more adept at navigating uh technical terrain in the mountains than I am but I wanted to talk about yeah how do you manage ego when you are riding a ridge line and you're like 200 feet from the summit but it'd be pretty hairy if you if you made the push and you, you know it's kind of not in your best interest yeah i mean i think that comes back to what i was talking about earlier with navigating my training and intuition, I just, I completely trust my gut instinct. If my gut is telling me that it's the wrong choice, then I'm just not going to do it. But I think that I should also back up a little bit because I think that really is, you know, that is only when it comes down to like this very last split second decision-making that does need to happen in those situations but I should back up and talk a little bit about planning because in order to even get to that point, planning is super important. And I mean, on, you know me, planning is everything for me. I'm a huge, huge planner. So as long as I feel like I really understand and know what I'm getting into, so that's sort of that analytical piece to this, I, I feel like that's when I can trust my gut. And so if I get into a position in the mountains where there's other things at play that maybe I missed or didn't analyze correctly, it clouds my ability to 
you know, be in touch with my gut instinct because then I, I have other questions. I have other questions that are like, can I actually do this? Is this within my technical abilities? And that's when I have to just say, if I'm even questioning that, then that's my ego probably that is going to be the driving force to take me forward, which is wrong. I don't want that. So I'm going to stop and I'm going to go back and I'm going to do something else. And that's totally okay. And that's honestly something to be super proud of, I think. Um, and fortunately, when I'm like doing something in the in the mountains that is more technical, I, I haven't really found myself in those positions because I really try to to mitigate and sort of reduce the the that happening. So I'm really not going to go out into the mountains and do something really technical unless I just feel super comfortable and like I know exactly what to expect in a lot of ways. And if I don't, then I should I should leave the situation. So, um yeah, I think planning, gut instinct, I mean, I think those are super important. Obviously, training and fitness is super important too, but that is more of a sort of multi-year progression, right? Like I know for me, I didn't just suddenly wake up some one day and say, "Awesome, I'm just going to go send it into the mountains and do something technical." It's no, I, you know, grew up going to the mountains a lot. I grew up with an affinity for climbing. I have endurance capabilities from my ski career and it's sort of all comes into this uh, ability from a fitness perspective to do it, but also have some gut instinct at play and the planning and the network of people to be able to talk to about where I am going and get as much beta as possible. And so um, I guess those three things are are at play for for this stuff, if that makes sense. Did you find yourself in any kind of tough situations this summer? uh during your time out in the sierra actually yes but this is interesting so we planned so we planned on doing just links link up of all of the california 14ers and then we decided to just do the sierra and all of this was after we had very shortly after we had covid and we as my partner eric and and i and so um Basically, we had these ideas and I was like, I just don't know where our fitness is going to be at because COVID really took it out of us, especially me. And we can go on more into that later if we want. Um, but that was a really interesting point for me because usually it's never my fitness that's in question. It's the other stuff that I'm talking about. Like, did I plan enough? Do I know enough about the route, um, et cetera? So now my sort of fitness is in question. And I don't really know what I can do right now. And so we planned this route. It was a pretty technical traverse. Um, and we got up there and we got past the crux of the route, but we were going to be up at, you know, 14,000 feet for many more hours. And we had all the beta. We did as much planning as possible, actually did even more because we knew, um, you know, the fitness piece was going to be a little, a little tricky. And I just had this gut feeling that it was going to turn into a vision quest if we just didn't turn around, which was, man, I was like, this is not, oh, like this block of time is meant to, you know, for us to go do these things. My ego is like, you want, you should go do it. Like it's in your plan, like stick to the plan. But my gut was like, you do not want this to turn into a vision quest. It's not a place you want to have a vision quest happen. And it's just not worth it. It's never worth it. And so 
you know, we turned around and we decided to try something a little bit less exposed and see if we could do a different route, which ended up being just a slog, literally talus for, I think it was like nine hours straight. It was really just a slog and turned around, had a friend pick us up and bail us out. Um, and which we had had planned. He's like, he was our emergency contact or bailout option and he was ready to go. And so we just had to do that. And so, you know, at first I was really bummed because I was like, wow, like, I can't believe that we weren't successful with this goal. Like it's, I, I felt like it was a really rare thing for us to, to not succeed in what we had planned. And then I realized that I actually was really proud. I, over time, I realized I was actually really proud of that decision because I completely trusted my gut and I was able to sort of squash the ego and make the right decision. And I think that's what's really important. Um, but now it's good motivation to go back over there. And I'm sure now that we, when we go back over there, we'll feel much better than we did and it'll probably be fairly cruiser. So that'll be kind of a fun, a fun thing to do in the future. But was that a, a harder call to make, um, with someone else with company versus like, if you're just out there by yourself? Ooh, that's a really good question. So with Eric, I have pretty much just as much trust as him as I do myself. And that's just because we've been together for eight years and he's my like main partner with this stuff. And I, I just love him so much. So of course, like I really care about, you know, not taking a big risk. Um, so I, with him, no. Um, in fact, sometimes it's easier to just pull the plug. Cause I'm just like, Oh my gosh, like if anything ever happened to him, I would just be, Oh, can't even imagine. Um, so I think there's that, but I think, yeah, I think it's a good question because I think I would maybe tend to struggle a little bit more if I was around friends who I didn't know as well, who like could totally just cruise it or something. And if I'm the weak link, I think my ego would totally come out to play. But that's also why I don't really make those choices. Like I don't really go out into the mountains and do things that I'm not sure I can do 100% comfortably with others just because I don't want to put myself in that position because I know my ego could be a problem, Um, I think. I mean, I just, I don't want it to be. And so I think it's better for me to just not do that and only do what I know for sure is going to be safe and comfortable for me. Yeah, I mean, like the, the, one of the worst feelings in the world is like feeling like you're holding someone back from like some special kind of, adventure right if you just don't have the fitness for it but i think in like those situations doing that can oftentimes result in like catastrophe which i think is like yeah it's just it's tough because it it forces you to be like really really honest with yourself which is something that i think a lot of people struggle with yeah yeah humility Uh, is a difficult thing (laughs) yeah so i i wanted to ask you about how you got into rock climbing um because like I don't know. I don't know too many ultra runners that have as much passion for another sport as you do for rock climbing. (laughs) Yeah, I think so. When I was growing up, I loved climbing with my dad and, you know, there isn't a ton of options. There weren't a ton of options in Wisconsin for that, but there is some, but we also went in the summers to the mountains a lot. So my parents were teachers. So we had the summers to go adventure as a family. And I just loved it. 
And I don't really know where that comes from. I really don't. I mean, I love, I just, I love, I just love it. <laughs> it's just something that I, from since I was a kid, just really had an affinity for. Um, and I think now being able to combine that with my endurance capabilities that I grew from my ski career and continue to grow with uh, training for ultra running, um, it's just, it's kind of a cool thing to combine. I mean, honestly, if I had to choose between, you know, climbing a big wall or doing something in the high Alpine where I could combine some sort of faster, more mobile, like running, scrambling stuff with some technical climbing, I would totally choose, uh, the latter. Um, so I, I, I like climbing for sure, but to a point, right? Like I like to be able to combine the two, um, is something that I've discovered over the past, more recently over the past few years, that that's an option and that's a thing. And that's really cool. Um, so I think, yeah, I mean, my sort of introduction from to climbing was when I was so young and I kind of got away from it in college and those through those years, actually far from it. I don't think I really climbed at all for the four years that I was in college. Um, I was just so focused on skiing and ski training. Uh, and I was in Maine and where I was in Maine, there wasn't like, I mean, there was some climbing nearby, but it wasn't like I was going to school, like buy some like big, big walls and great stuff. So, um, yeah, I think it's just kind of come full circle in a way about having like the ski and then the original like love for climbing as a kid. And now, uh, uh, having, having that endurance plus climbing combo. Yeah. I think the binary there is interesting. I like I've climbed a handful of times. Um, but like when I'm out ultra running or running, I guess, uh, I tend <laughs> to kind of like get to a point where I can like disassociate and enter this kind of like, I don't know, uh, state of mind where I'm like almost out of body and not thinking the about flow. how, how far, yeah, a flow state where I'm not thinking about like how far I have to run. Whereas like climbing is the complete opposite, especially I imagine on like a big wall, you have to be like super, super dialed in. Um, is it hard to make like the transition between the two kind of mentalities? Hmm. Or are you like in a flow state climbing as well? Totally flow state. Yeah. Yeah. I actually think that in a lot of ways, climbing is even more, it, it, it's, you just have to be so focused, right? On just right. like this one small place. And I feel like it almost, it, it, it sounds like kind of an oxymoron in some ways. <laughs> like you have all this equipment around you and you're like on this exposed face and yet it's almost simpler. Um, in a lot of ways, because you have to be so present. And so, yeah, it, I definitely think that from where my brain goes is very similar. I do think that, you know, there's something happening in our brains as endurance people that, you know, we get so much like excitement and joy and adrenaline off of, off of running and exercise. And I actually get more of that um, from a run than I, I, than I will a climb. Um, and that's probably, you know, the, the, the sort of endorphins that are, that are happening and stuff. But, um, but yeah, I do have that flow for, for both. And I don't find it too challenging. I actually have never really considered or noticed a challenge between, between the two really. Like going back and forth. Between the two. Yeah. 
So what does like your ideal kind of run climb project look like? Ooh, actually, I think so. I would have to I would tend towards looking to the Sierra just because that's such a great place for this stuff. And I lo- I personally just love it. Um, but I think, yeah, doing something like multi-day where there's a technical piece to it, um, technical meaning like, you know, potential for, you know, needing gear and ropes, um, but also, you know, running and being super mobile in between. So I think there's like a, you could, it's endless possibilities that you could do in this year and other mountain ranges as well. Um, but that's definitely the like ideal sort of link up for me is what, how can I combine, you know, fast paced running on like a trail into some sort more scrambly terrain where I don't need gear into something where you totally like could, you could use gear um, and get to the top of something and then, you know, maybe traverse around and go down and, you know, maybe link something else up and running in between. And it's just, yeah, I love thinking about that stuff. I think that's, yeah, definitely the ideal project idea. Do you ever feel like your joy and like emphasis on making sure you spend a ton of time adventuring the mountains, like takes away from your performance at races? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. I mean, I think like, boy, I think there's some challenges there because the ideal training for a lot of races, you know, isn't necessarily climbing. I do think the component of, you know, bringing myself joy and having loving my the process that I have for training um, can override some of the more optimal physiological benefits that other training might have, if you will. But I think, um, I think most of the time since I live in San Francisco, I can get such high quality sort of runnable vert and training in that when I am in the mountains for extended periods of time, I can like really just tap into that, um, that joy, that just pure joy that I have for being there. And I think that helps in a lot of ways. And I also think just the time on feet that we need for ultras is a huge benefit to some of this stuff. I I mean, while if I'm mixing in, you know, a lot of climbing in a really long day, the the time on feet's a little bit harder to quantify because uh, climbing isn't necessarily the same sort of impact that we get from running, but I'm still pushing and I'm still, you know, moving out and I'm at high altitude. And so there's totally benefits. Um, I think, yeah, I mean, I think that it in some ways isn't always the most optimal, but I think there are some huge benefits to it, especially if I um, if I do things in the right way in between those days, right? So like making sure I'm getting my strides in, making sure I am getting some like more runnable um, workouts in, making sure if I'm doing super low effort, more climbing oriented, super long stuff that I'm mixing in some good intervals, but those intervals aren't you know, too big so that I'm introducing too much stress in my body. And so, yeah, I think it's like playing around with combining the two. I mean, I don't, I don't really have like a playbook for, for this. So it is a lot of me trying to, to figure out what, what makes sense. And it's a definitely personal journey in a lot of ways, but that's, 
some of the things that I've been doing to to combine it and make sure that when I when I tow a start line, I've put in um, a good training block, even if I'm doing that stuff as well. But I think that that hits on something that's important to to make note of is like you you don't have to be a slave to the to the training plan in order to get like 80 to 90 percent of the benefits of following that training plan. Mm -hmm. And I think like a lot of people start working with coaches and they're like, all right, I have to do X, Y and Z. And if I don't hit those paces, then like I won't have the fitness. I won't be prepared. I think you're a testament to like why that's not true. Yeah. I I totally agree with that. And I think yeah, I think there's definitely a place for for following a training plan and especially for people who are still trying to figure out, you know, if they're newer to training. Like I've been training my whole life pretty much. I've been on like some sort of training plan with really amazing coaching staff and so I mean that I think helps me a lot. Um but I think, yeah, having structure, but being able to listen to yourself on top of that structure, like, yeah, both two really, really important um, concepts. And making sure you're happy doing it. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I think that's the, that's the biggest piece of it all, right? Like, if, yeah. you, if you aren't happy with what you're doing, then probably should reassess. So before you uh, kind of went out to the east side and uh, played around the mountains for a while, uh, you raced quite a few times this year, um, including like some of your first running races in Europe. Because I, I knew you, yeah. I know you went over there to ski. Um, uh, yeah, I was. I had a really fun start to the season. I first I did the Sonoma Marathon, which was super nice because it was close by. Sonoma is just about an hour's drive from San Francisco and it was a North Face sponsored race. And so it was just super fun to to go as, you know, my first race as a North Face athlete. And I was just coming off of some nerve stuff that has ha- was happening uh, at the end of last year. So it was fun to just get that effort in. And then from there, um, we had, uh, there was a first World Cup race for the World Mountain Running Association in Ireland. And so I actually joined my Irish teammate, uh, Irish American. He lives in San Francisco, um, <laughs> but he's from Ireland, Paddy O'Leary. I joined him and raced um, in in Ireland. And that was an incredible experience. I'd never been to Ireland. I'm really excited to go back. It was, it, it was amazing. We did so much running through bogs. And he was trying to explain what a bog was to me prior to the trip. And I, I was like, oh, yeah, I totally get it. It's just like a swamp, right? No, it is not a swamp. <laughs> it is so different than a swamp. It was honestly one of the, uh, to date, one of the coolest racing experiences I've ever had. And this includes my ski career as well. Just absolutely incredible. Um, so that World Cup was uh, a part of that Seven Sisters um, race that they have there every year anyway. But uh, this year they were able to make it into that World Cup event. And then the next week I actually raced the Maxi Marathon um, out of Annecy in France because we had a North Face Run Team Summit um, over there. So we went from Ireland to France. I got two, my first two running international races in within a week. So that was pretty cool. Um, Very awesome experiences. And then from there, came back and did uh, the VK and 26K at Broken Arrow, and then 
Mount Marathon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Mount Marathon. And then I got COVID. So <laughs> that put a little bit of a kibosh on the summer racing. <laughs> yeah. Did you have some good uh, some good Guinness in, in Ireland? It was so good. <laughs> I feel like, yeah, everything in the States, like, from what I hear, just pales in comparison Truly. To, to drinking it from the source. No, and I, I, I didn't really believe that. I was like, how can it be different? It is so different, so different. So if you like Guinness here, you're gonna be mind blown. You go to Ireland and try it there. All right, I want to talk a little bit about Mount Marathon because I don't know how familiar our audience is with it, and it's a really, really special race. And you've run it two years in a row now. Uh, so I'm wondering if you can kind of tee that up for us. Yeah. Oh my gosh. It is an incredible, incredible race. It's so Mount Marathon is actually the peak that you run up. Uh, a lot of people think it's a marathon. It is not. It's a, it's pretty much a 5k. It's about three miles. Um, the race is so it's like less than an hour, which sounds very long for a 5k. So let me do some more explaining here. So you start in town, you run about like three quarters, half mile to three quarters of a mile on flat pavement, you reach the base of Mount Marathon and you just start climbing straight up. So you actually gain 3,500 feet in the race. And that's pretty much all in like 1.2 miles or so. Um, please don't quote me on these uh, distances. I'm, I, I'm pretty close, I think, but maybe not exact. But it's, it's over a mile, but you're gaining... 3,500 feet of vert. Um, it's insane. It's so cool. And the community around it, I think, is definitely the most special part. Definitely a shorter race than what I would typically um, typically do. But since I was doing so much racing back to back, it felt right to do some shorter stuff this year. Um, but yeah, so you go up, hit the summit, and you go back down. So VK races, you just go up. This is like that plus some. And then you also have to go back down. And for me, the descent is definitely the hardest thing. It is just, you have to go so fast. I mean, people are descending this thing in like 15 minutes, way less than that for the top descenders. I mean, it's just mind blowing how fast some people are going down this super, super steep face. There's even a cliff section and people are just like jump. It's just, it's incredible. It's honestly, there's a live stream for it. And I really think I urge a lot of people to watch it as many, if this sounds interesting at all, people should absolutely pull it up. It's always on, the race is always on July 4th. Um, so you know exactly when it's going to be, um, no matter what day of the week that falls on, it's on that day. And it's just, it's such a spectacle, but it's just like, it's crazy. It's so cool. Some of the scenes from that are like insane. Like all these like, all these like grizzly alaskans are like showing up afterwards like covered in blood and dirt wearing like gardener gloves and yeah. like duct tape yeah they're like truly. completely shirtless it's insane i i i mean I, everyone's wearing garden gloves and i i wore garden gloves i was like you really need to wear them and it's because you have all there's just it's it's there's all these brambles and it's just overgrown and there's so much sharp rock and mud. And if you fall, you, you just go right down to your hands and you're definitely going to fall because there's just, it's so steep. So it, you need something to protect your hands and most gloves just aren't durable enough. So you just wear garden gloves. It's so weird, but it's so funny and cool. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
how do you like train for a race like that? Just a lot of like uphill running? Yeah. I mean, I think I haven't, I never really trained specifically for it. I just kind of try to incorporate it into my racing schedule and hope that my fitness could sort of translate well enough. Um, but I think, you know, so I definitely am not, I should not really share exactly how to train for a race like that, but yeah, I mean, I think VO2 max, um, interval sessions and some really good steep uphill and downhill running. And just, especially on that sort of some technical downhill steep stuff, just to get your brain used to that sort of level of speed and agility for a train like that. I think that's, those are some of the key components to, to training and doing well in a race like that. But Ali Mack is probably the person we should all be talking to. She crushed it this year and broke the course record. And just, it was phenomenal what, what she was able to put on, uh, on that course. But what I kind of noticed too, is that like no one uses hiking poles for a race like that. I think they're actually not allowed. Um, Oh, really? Yeah. So I think, um, yeah, I'm almost positive that they are, yeah, because they're, I think they'd be concerned about people tripping because um, everyone's just like, you know, all together at the start and stuff. But, um, but I, you know, I personally love poles. So if they did allow them, I would actually probably consider using them just because I love poles. But yeah, for Mount Marathon, they, I, yeah, I think I probably would have considered using them if they allowed them. So they must not. Yeah, let's I I think that's like another good kind of segue into something I wanted to ask you about, Uh, just because like coming from a ski background and then getting into like mountain ultra running, you have to have like you have to be pretty savvy with a pair of poles. And I think that like poles are just this is like weird thing for most runners. Like they have like no idea how to use them. They think they're like meant for uphills when I think that they're better used like running downhill. Um, and I'm, I'm wondering if you can share maybe some tips you've learned from, from your years of, uh, wielding the wizard sticks. Yeah. Ugh, I love, I love poles. Um, and obviously coming from a ski background, I have had a lot of experience using them, but, oh boy, I'm well, okay. I'm sure you're expecting an answer that involves technique. But Which I, is hard to demonstrate over a podcast. I actually, like you grip them like this and then you move them like this. Yeah, everyone knows what you're talking about, right? Right. Yeah, totally. <laughs> um, okay, so I actually think what most people get wrong is the idea behind why they're so valuable. So obviously technique things aside, like I really do think that the if people understand why there's value in them, then... I think that's like sort of (laughs) the basis for this conversation, if that's okay. Um, Yeah, that's what I'm getting at. Yeah. So I think like when we use poles, a lot of people experience more cardiovascular demand. And if you're just getting used to them, that feels like super unnecessary, right? Like why would you want more cardiovascular output if you're already you know, pushing yourself. Um, I think it's really, really important to remember that when we're running ultras, we are moving for so long. We need to keep our efforts low, like below our lactate threshold, which means there's 
really just ample oxygen to spare, making it worth a sort of reduction in effort for our legs and feet muscles. So I think people should think about it as a bit of a trade-off. You should be willing to, you know, breathe a tiny bit harder um, in order to spare your leg muscles because we're already going for so long. I mean, our legs and feet, our lower <laughs> halves are just getting the the large brunt of these efforts. And so I think people need to sort of think about how there's value in that, even if they're noticing a little bit more of a cardiovascular demand, because the awesome thing is more, the more you use pulls in your daily training, the more your cardiovascular demand will decrease because you get more efficient using them, which then makes pulls significantly more efficient over the long term. And so for me, I don't really notice because I've used poles for pretty much my whole life since I started skiing when I was learning to walk. I like, I don't, I don't really notice much of a cardiovascular difference when I use poles. I do notice that my legs get way less of an impact. And so I feel much more efficient um, when I have poles in hand, especially for longer distances and stuff. And so that's where I think the value comes in. And there's totally there, and I'm not just like speaking out of, you know, nothing. Like there is science behind this to prove that this is exactly what is happening from a physiological standpoint. And so think about, I think people should think about that. I think people should think about that trade-off. I think people should think about trying, trying to use them. Um, so that's, that's my take on polls. <laughs> there are lots of opinions. That's my personal take. And, uh, those are some some real facts. So yeah, I also think that like quote unquote pole technology has gotten like <laughs> so good in the past few years oh that gosh, like totally. I never like I'll put a pair of poles in my pack and like forget they're there. Uh, yeah. Whereas in the That's past, so I think right. there's a lot of like mm-hmm. yeah, like manipulating them and stuff. Oh yeah, um, yeah. There's the poles that you can find today are just out of this world in terms of durability, super lightweight, uh, super low volume, even though they are super durable. They're just, they're amazing. (laughs) Yeah. I do get some weird looks when I'm like gallivanting around the city with a pair of poles and people are like, dude, like you're hundreds (laughs) of miles from the mountains. Like, what are you doing? You don't need those. Uh, I know. And then you go to Europe and everyone's using them and it's totally normal. Right. Right. Yeah, what did you what was your take on like the European trail scene? I feel like I ask everyone that races in Europe like that like it's some like undiscovered land, but yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm always curious just like what the the contrast in in the culture is like over there. Yeah, I mean, it's it was, you know, I definitely since I did um uh one of the Maxi races and Maxi is a pretty big series. Um it was it was pretty hyped up. I mean, we ran, we finished right in Annecy, which is quite a large town. Um, You know, there's lots of banners and uh, infrastructure set up for the race. And so it just, it felt like this really, really big deal, um, which was really cool. And there's totally races in the US that feel like that too. Um, But it definitely felt like the whole town and community was 
knew what was happening, which I did feel like was a little different. I don't think we really get that as much here. And I think that was definitely something that I noticed um, uh, about that race in France in particular. Um, so the race that we did in Ireland was fairly remote. So it was, you know, uh, I think largely because of that, you know, not quite as big of a spectacle as uh, as as the race in France that I did. But, you know, all that being said, I think it just felt like this. Yeah, it just felt like this really big deal. But that, you know, Mount Marathon felt like that too. I felt like Mount Marathon totally was the same in that regard. Like the whole community and surrounding um, communities come out for that too. And that's obviously not in Europe. That's in the US. So um, I think there's definitely some parallels from some of the races, but I think my sense, and I, again, I've only done two running races in Europe, so I don't really know, but it does seem like more races in Europe are like that which is interesting. Yeah. Well, we love to generalize on this show. So yes. Okay. <laughs> and pretty soon you're going to figure out what the trail scene's like in Africa for yeah. uh, trail Cape Town. So we so might have cool. to have you uh, back on for that. <laughs> uh, but before I get you out of here, uh, we are recording this on Halloween. Um, and I wanted to ask you what, <laughs> what looking back on it, what has been your best Halloween costume to date? Oh boy. Putting you on the spot. I think this this is really random and I, I truly I should ask my parents if they can remember why I wanted to dress up as this. But when I was in third grade, I was a lion tamer. Um, and it's honestly it's so it's so funny. I like greased back my hair. I drew like this huge mustache on my face. I carried a stuffed lion around and I wore like a sort of like white button down shirt with like a, a black bow tie. I don't know where the heck I came up with this. I should ask my parents. Um, that one always comes to mind. People ask me the, about costumes. I don't really know why. I think I probably had some better ones, but that one's just so random and weird. I think it's really funny. That's a good one. Yeah, we should ask your parents, see if we can get a, a picture to go along with the episode. Oh, no. I don't know if anyone wants that. <laughs> We'll put it out over social media or something. Do you have one though? I feel like you. If oh, I have man. to answer that, you have to answer that. Yeah, yeah, that's that. That's fair. Uh, yeah, actually, like I feel like when people get asked this question, they always think about like you know something from childhood. And I think my best Halloween costume dates back to like a few years ago when uh, my buddy and I dressed up as uh, like the little rascals who uh, <laughs> they had like this character. Um, that would like they would essentially stand on each other's shoulders and wear a huge trench coat and like pretend that they were an adult the little rascals oh were a bunch of kids <laughs> so, Wait, my so buddy did, and you, I, did you stand on his shoulders yeah so i was the bottom and oh. i was the legs oh my and my buddy was uh the upper half so he like put on a fake beard and like <laughs> glasses and like a top hat and i wore like a pair of like big slacks and dress shoes and we'd walk around with this huge trench coat. And then when people would ask like who we were, we he would jump on top of my shoulders and we would put on a trench coat. That is and, incredible. That's very and, committed. And try to cheat around. Like... It was great. Um, but then we went to like a house party and the ceilings were only like, you know, eight feet tall. So <laughs> we couldn't really assemble our costume. So we just got a lot of weird looks. 
that is, I was going to say, because my first thought was they walked around like that the whole time. But that I'm glad to hear yeah. that I was only in very short spurts. <laughs> it was upon request. Okay, cool. Yeah. Wow. That's, yeah. wow. How did you guys come up with that? That seems like a lot of work. <laughs> yeah, a lot of work. Maybe a few PBRs. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But it was good. All right. Um, Liv, yeah. Maybe we can bring that back for uh, for next Halloween. Oh, yeah. That'd be sweet. I would love yeah. to see that. That's a good call. All right, Liv. I've, I've taken up enough of your time. Uh, thanks for the chat. This was a lot of fun. I know. Thank you. I guess it's time for us to go trick-or-treating, huh? Yeah. About that time. <laughs> That's it for this edition of Off the Couch. Thanks to Olivia for the conversation. Thanks to Justin Bob for producing this episode. And from everyone here at Blister, please take good care of yourself, keep moving forward, and we'll talk to you again next week.